with you again today. You know, you guys have done a lot since I moved here to honor me and to welcome me. And I know you weren't able to do all you wanted because of COVID last year. But I got to say, last night, really, you went above and beyond because throwing that parade for me, um, that was something. I I showed up. A lot of the CR people were there to support me. And uh, there was like people I didn't even know, lights and things in front of me and behind me. And I just walked down the street. Everywhere I went, people were waving at me and saying, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas over and over again. So guys, I'm just... I'm so honored to be here with you. Let's open in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this gift. And right now, would you open every heart in here to your word and choose to speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just ask you, as we're, we're moving on in, in Genesis here, basically if you're following, we're, we're, we're going through the major characters. We cannot possibly cover every chapter and verse, but we're following uh, the major characters of Genesis, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. Now we're to Joseph. And the story of Joseph takes us from chapter 37 through chapter 50 in the book of Genesis. I encourage you to be reading because we're not, we're not uh, going to come anywhere close to covering everything that's in there. But let me ask you, why do we tell Bible stories? And if you immediately think, uh, to learn good moral lessons, I want to tell you, you haven't yet learned why we tell Bible stories. That's why we read The Three Little Pigs. Mm -hmm. That's why we tell the story of Pinocchio, to learn good moral lessons. But the Bible is not there primarily to teach us good moral lessons. Although it does that along the way, the Bible is given to us to teach us about our identity to teach us about who God is and who we are in light of God, to teach us where we belong, to teach us the the direction that history is going, and then so we can find our place in that grand narrative. The the Bible is about our identity. In, In a sense, the story of Joseph is your story, not in a narcissistic, individualistic kind of way, but in a, a way that says, we are tied to this story. You find your identity in the story. You find your connection to God in the story. Try reading The Three Little Pigs and getting that out of it. (laughs) Who am I? The middle piggy brother. You know, what what does that tell us? But this story tells us about God and who we are and where life is going, what God is doing for us and in us and through us. And all that's tied up. That's why we talk about these Bible stories. And it's exciting to do so today as we... uh, Get into the story of Joseph. I want to tell you about a little bit of a family problem that's going to set the tone for this text. Jacob had no problems. Jacob, Joseph, Joseph's dad. Jacob had no problem having favorites. You know that? He had a favorite wife. That was Rachel. I can't be too hard on him. My favorite wife's Olivia. <laughs> no, this is one good reason to be against polygamy, okay? Uh, among others, like... What happens when you have a favorite if you're polygamous? <laughs> That's a problem in your family, right? So let's just stay with monogamy. Uh, J- Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel, and then his favorite son was Joseph. And he made it very clear that Joseph is his favorite. I would never do that to my, to my children. I don't choose favorites. The other day we were playing Would You Rather, and Eden asked us, Would you rather have Eden or Avery or Sydney?" 
I said, I'm not answering that. I said, it depends on the day. That's the truth. Furthermore, I will not choose a favorite based on some kind of birth order deal. You got to earn that spot, right? What have you done for me lately? And then maybe, maybe you'll get that, that place. Right, this is how you be a good father, guys. Joseph, Jacob didn't care. He made Joseph his favorite. He made it very obvious. And uh, that was a problem in his family. Let's look at the scripture here. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, remember the, the concubines. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to the father. Now, here's the other problem with Joseph. He's already his dad's f- favorite, but then he did the big no-no that nobody likes. He told on them. <laughs> I used to have a little brother who told on me. still have a little brother, but uh, he doesn't tell on me anymore. That was a problem. I actually made up a song about how he told on me when I was a kid. I'm not going to sing it right now. He didn't know that, that, that if you tell on people, that's a big no-no. And other, as, as I've learned to say it over the years, uh, snitches get stitches, right? That, that's, that's, uh, Rocky, that's what I learned on the street. And they taught, taught me that. You should, learn, you should know that. Snitches get stitches. Joseph didn't know that, and he got in, got in big trouble. Brought a bad, bad report to them. He's his father's favorite. He, he told on them. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a, a, a robe of many colors, or uh, it may not be, that may not be the best translation. It was some kind of distinctive robe that, that said, you are exalted. You're very special. You're different than the others. So Jacob wasn't hiding this. <laughs> he was saying, this is my, this is my favorite. And when his, brother's father, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. I've, I've bolded dream every time it shows up in our text because this is an important feature. It's a central feature to this story of Joseph, how dreams show up. Pay attention when you're reading it. Dreams are central to the story of Joseph. Dreams were a big deal in antiquity. It was almost a science to how you interpreted dreams, at least like with the Egyptians, as we'll see in a minute. They had people who were trained. They had books about it. They studied how do you interpret dreams. They understood that God spoke to people in dreams. So Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers they hated him anymore, even more, see if you can figure out why they hated him because of this dream. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. I'm not sure what that means. I just wanted to share. No, I think, that, I think they got to the point pretty quickly. Uh, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he, he has another dream that's sim- similar to that one. And he shares that one. And his, his father responds to this one and says, really? And we're not going to read that. I'm going to skip on ahead just for time's sake. So then Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. Here he goes. They saw him from afar, and before, him, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. You see, that's now his identity. This dream is a big deal in the story. 
The question that's put before us by the text is, what's going to become of this dream that God has given to Joseph? And they say, here comes this dreamer. They don't like the dream. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what what will become of his dreams. And there is the tendency of somebody who opposes God's purpose to say, we'll take it into our hands and we'll do something about it. We will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, the oldest, he said, uh, let's not take his life. He said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then Reuben was thinking that he might rescue him later out of his hand and restore him to Jacob. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. There's that robe showing up. They didn't like it. They took it off of him. And they took him, this is verse 24, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and they threw him down, they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. I read a commentary who said there's something kind of mafia-like about that. <laughs> threw their brother into the pit and sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming, along, coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, had some winter fresh with them, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. But Judah says to them, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Now how about that moral reasoning? <laughs> Let's don't kill him, he's our brother. Let's just sell him. <laughs> Great guy there. Uh, appreciate his nobility. And his brothers listened to him. Then the, Midian, the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He feels the responsibility that he has not returned Jacob to his father. And they took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered it, slaughtered a gobe. <laughs> <laughs> not a gobe, they slaughtered a goat, there we go, and dipped the robe in the goat's blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe, a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And back then, they had a practice of mourning for so many days. They would set aside a period of a week or a month. When Jacob dies, we'll see at the end of Genesis, uh, the Egyptians mourned for 70 days. I don't know if it ever got any longer than 70 days. They would, they would uh, put it aside, though, a certain length of time to mourn for people. And Jacob says to them, no, I shall go down to Sheol. I'll go to the grave to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now this, this text just expresses to us the heartbreak of a father. I always think that one of the worst things that a parent could ever go through is, is a kidnapping. And not just the loss of the child, but the wandering and the, the mental anguish you would go through in a situation like that. And uh, this is not exactly that. It is that, but it's not the way Jacob understands it. But he understands that his son is gone. He never gets to say goodbye to him. 
and he thinks he's dead, and he never, he'll never see him again. We see Jacob's mourning, but we don't. The text does not really show us Joseph's mourning. It doesn't show us Joseph's heart. But can you imagine how heartbroken Joseph must have been? I mean, just knowing that his brothers, his own flesh and blood, hated him like that, that must have been bad. Hated him enough that they would either kill him or sell him as a slave. And then he's got to go into a totally foreign land, totally apart from his brothers and his family, thinking, I don't know what my dad will think. He's got to grieve his dad, imagining how his dad is grieving him, grieving that he's never going to return to his homeland, grieving that his family hates him, grieving that his life is over as far as his, grieving, quite possibly thinking the dreams that he had taken to be telling him about the future, the dreams are dead. He thought he was having uh, some kind of great future in plan. God was speaking. Nope, it's all dead. But it gets worse for Joseph. Because then he's taken into a land that may have looked something like this. The pyramids, one of the wonders of the ancient world. They were built long before, at least some of them, I don't know about all of them, but some of them I know were built long before the time of Joseph. In fact, they're so amazing, you sometimes see shows on, on the History Channel or something that are speculating, you'll have people in there speculating that aliens were involved in coming down to, to build the pyramids because they don't know how people figured out uh, the technology to get these things built. And you see that, that head, what do I assume, is a, a pharaoh, the king there. It's a huge monument to pharaoh. And of course, the tombs themselves... I mean, the, the, the pyramids themselves were tombs for the pharaohs. How's that? What's that say about your self-understanding? <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like to be buried in that. <laughs> Just for me. Joseph may have walked past something like this. This Hebrew nomadic kid, shepherd kid, now being led past these great statues. hope you can see them well enough, maybe a distance for some of you. Uh, maybe he saw statues like these. You see, what their understanding was that the Pharaoh was a god. He was the visible representation. They were a very poly polytheistic society, and, and Pharaoh was one of the gods. He, in, in some uh, times of history, he had merged with some of the, the gods or another god or something. Anyway, he was, a, he was a deity, and this reinforced his power. He was over everything, in charge of everything. And then Joseph is brought into this world where everything speaks. This world is designed to speak. It's bringing a message. And it's saying, this is reality. Right? This is greatness. This is power. This is what our gods do. Especially our God, Pharaoh, and the gods that back him up and the gods that are around us in Egypt. And our God has allowed us to take you, Joseph, from your place and to make you a slave to us. You understand that this archaeology is designed. believing in the God of Israel when you've just been transported out from the wilderness land, out from wandering around with the sheep, 
and taken into a world that speaks like this, with power and majesty. We must be aware. Here's Josh right here for you guys. <laughs> my, my mic's off. This, this working? Other one? Okay, this is working. <laughs> okay, time out. Thank you. All right. We good to go? All right, thank you. So, um, we have to be aware of things that are designed to speak to us and to say that this is God. Things in our world that are designed to speak. Just like this world was designed to speak and say to Joseph, this is God, this is reality, this is power. Sometimes things happen like that today in our world. I, I was struck when Olivia and I visited Washington, D.C. for our 10th an, uh, wedding anniversary. And we went there and saw the marvelous statues and buildings and things that have been built. That's the Lincoln Memorial there, this gigantic Abraham Lincoln. And you know what they call those places? I didn't know this uh, until we visited and walked around in them. They call those places temples. We've got the, the Thomas Jefferson Temple, the Lincoln Temple. I was, I was surprised as we, we walked around on a tour of the Capitol building, and we saw this. At one point, the tour guide looked up at the ceiling. I don't know how many of you have been there and seen this, but he said, this is George Washington's uh, apotheosis. There's George himself right there. I don't know how well you can see that either. It's a little bit dark. But, uh, he said, this is George Washington's apotheosis. And I, said, I think I said this out loud. At least I said it in my head. If I didn't, I said, what'd you say? Because I was familiar with that term from my own studies in biblical history and, and in history surrounding biblical times. And I knew that this is what they did, for example, for Roman emperors. When Roman emperors died, they believed they experienced an apotheosis. Theosis is the word for God. Apa means up. They went up to be with the gods. They ascended to the gods. And I, was, I said, what? We've got George Washington ascending to be with the gods here in, the, in this country? Look, George Washington's probably a good guy, okay? I'm not knocking George Washington. What I'm trying to call our attention to is that uh, uh, there are sometimes stories that we tell in this world and structures we build in this world that are meant to say to us something about who God is, about where power is, about where reality is. In fact, as we walked around and watched all this beautiful stuff and all this, this, this wealth and, and, and uh, uh, the magnificence of Washington, D.C., I literally talked to Olivia and wondered, should I go into politics? Because as I was there, I was thinking, is this where things really happen? Is this how the world really works? Is this where you really make a difference? And I'm not trying to comment on, on, on anything big picture here about, uh, or any, in any detail, let me say, about what the a Christian approach to politics is. There are different ideas about that, and I'm not all against political involvement. But I am against acting like this is where God is. God has a church, and it is the body of Christ, and he is the king of the universe. And so that is where we stand that is where we put our hearts. We don't throw our hearts into George Washington or any other human being in history. And we don't worship at the Lincoln Memorial. And call it a temple if you want to. 
What do you do when you're surrounded by things that tend to say to you, oh, here is God? And it looks that way on the outside. And it doesn't necessarily have to be politics. It can be sports. It can be money. It can be the, the car commercials saying, this is where the real thing is. And that is blinding to us. What did Joseph do when he was surrounded by a world testifying against the God of Israel? I want you to look at chapter 39. We're skipping chapter 38. It's kind of an interlude. Kind of a crazy story if you want to go to read chapter 38. We won't get into it right now. Now when Joseph was brought down to Egypt in Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard in the Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And here's what it says. The Lord was with Joseph. And the text says this several times. It's a covenantal phrase. The Lord was with Joseph. It doesn't just mean that Joseph had some kind of feeling like God was with him. It means God was present there doing things around Joseph to bless Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph. So even people around the blessing get blessed. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. The Lord is with Joseph, blessing him. Notice, we may be tempted to kind of Americanize this story and say Joseph was such a hard worker, but that's not the Bible story. He probably was, but that's just not the Bible story. The Bible says that the Lord just blesses Joseph. He's with him, not because of his hard work, his diligence, his intelligence. The Lord is just with him. And so he's blessed. It's important for us to stop and just recognize that um, the Lord is the God who blesses, who gives. He's in beneficent relationship with his people. But he doesn't always do it the way we expect him to. And if you're determined that God can only bless you according to your plan, you're very likely to miss the hand of God in your life. God is always blessing, but he's always on his own schedule. And we don't make the schedule for blessings. And it looks right now like what has happened to Joseph has killed the dream It looks like it's all over. But God plans to bless. And when Joseph is dragged off as a slave, shown the power of Egypt, he's in Potiphar's house and he's finding still that God will bless him. Not according to his plan, not even according to what he thought God had shown him. But still blessing, because that is the God that we have. There's no calculus that determines This is exactly how the blessing of God will work out. You put in the numbers, it spits out over here like this because God is free and he blesses according to his own plan and his own schedule. The question cannot be for us, did God do what we expected? Did he do it just like we thought he was going to do it? 
question is not, are you in prison? Or are you, I'm sorry, are you uh, in slavery? But the question is, is the Lord with you in the slavery? Because that's what Joseph found, that God went with him. Well, I'm going to skip this part reading it, but if you know the story, Potiphar's wife finds Joseph very attractive, and she tries to seduce him, tries to get him to come. And thank you for the great reading, Silas. Tries to get him and, and come sleep with her, and he refuses. Eventually, she accuses him of rape because she's mad about it, and uh, that gets Joseph thrown in prison. Now he's gone from slave to being in charge as a slave in the house to being thrown in prison. And here we get down to the end of chapter 39. Let's just uh, pick up at verse uh, 21. And the scripture says, But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, the question is not, are you in prison? The question is, is the Lord with you in prison? And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. There it is again. The Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made to succeed. He blessed Joseph right there in prison in a way he could not have expected. I, I'm reminded when I think about this of Corey Ten Boom, one of our great heroes, Avery's middle name is, is chosen after uh, Corey Timboom's other name, Joanna. And uh, she was a mighty servant of Christ, and she was thrown into a concentration camp uh, because she, she, hid prisoner, uh, she hid Jews who, were, who the Nazis were trying to capture. And uh, in that concentration camp, they ended up with fleas in their quarters, their, their living quarters, their, their sleeping quarters or whatever. And, of course, nobody wants fleas, but then they realized that the guards, the, the Nazi guards, would not come into their quarters because the fleas were in there. And so they could read the Bible, and they could hold Bible studies, and they could talk about Jesus right there. And she realized God had prevented the Nazis from coming into their quarters through those fleas. God was blessing her right there in the concentration camp, making her a missionary and a minister in a Nazi concentration camp. Not the way she would have chosen to be a blessing, but using her mighty and continue and planning to continue to use her for years. Well, you, you move on to chapter 40. We're not going to read it, but uh, that's where Joseph encounters in prison the uh, royal helpers, the butler and the baker. And they have dreams. And Joseph says to them, and this is a bold statement in light of all that was going on with dream practice back in those days. Uh, they say, we can't interpret these dreams. And he says, do not interpretations belong to God. And you see, here he is, this Hebrew kid who's been brought into the empire of power and glory and now been thrown down once again into the pit, so to speak. And he's still clinging to his faith in God. And he's still talking to people about God. And he says... No, I'm not, I don't need the training that the Egyptian wisdom masters have. I don't need to read their books because God is the one in charge of dreams. And he tells them their dreams. One of them is going to be set free. One of them is going to die. If you read the story, you'll see Joseph really needs to work on his bedside manner a little bit. He's kind of 
kind of hard on the one who's going to die. It's a little bit blunt. But uh, they come true. He asks the butler who's set free to remember him, but the butler does not. And he continues on in prison for at least two more years, or two more years, and I don't know how much time total he was in prison, but we can assume it was quite a while. And then eventually Pharaoh has dreams. So now more dreams playing into the story, and nobody can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And then the butler remembers Joseph and says, well, there is somebody. So he calls Joseph, and verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. Now the dream involved, uh, the first one was about cows, fat cows. There were seven fat cows and seven skinny cows came up and ate the fat cows. All right, nobody could interpret it. Then he had an agricultural dream paralleling that one. That's the dream. And he says, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Here he is before Pharaoh, calling attention to God. Look at these texts here. I'm just selectively choosing them. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Pharaoh, uh, Joseph interpreted the dreams. It has to do with an, a coming famine and how to prepare for the famine. And he says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. It's one thing to tell your brothers about your dream. It's one thing to tell the prisoners, your fellow prisoners, that God interprets dreams. But what do you do when you stand before the Pharaoh, the great king? What do you say to him? This is your chance. Don't blow it. What if he doesn't like you saying God's in charge? What if he sends you back to prison because of that? You know, and, and you might have thought somebody would have responded when, when, when Joseph says God's, God's in charge of dreams. They might say, well, God's in charge of freedom, isn't he? But I, Pharaoh, am the one actually who sent you to prison. Don't you know I can send you that right back? But, but Joseph doesn't worry about any of that. His confidence is in God because he has heard from God. Joseph has a history with God, and he's not going to let it go. No matter how many bad things happen to him, he's going to cling to that God. And he's going to keep talking about that God. He's going to keep believing in that God. And he's going to stand before the highest king and say, this is reality. I don't care what your pyramids say. I don't care what your statues say. God is the one who is in charge. It's interesting to think about Joseph and his own thought process with all of this. We don't know what went on in his head, but human beings in general get to make choices in how they approach things like this. He could have emphasized in his mind and thought, God is the one who put me in prison. That's what he could have said to himself repeatedly. But instead he said, God is the one who has blessed me in prison. You see, when we're facing difficult times, we have a choice to make too. To think, is God the one who put me here? Or is God the one who blesses me even as I'm here? And is he the one who plans to bless me going forward? And this is what it means, guys, this is what it means to really have faith. 
Please hear me on this. Having faith is not so much about figuring out the arguments and coming to the conclusion that there must be a supreme being. There must be an eternal, immovable, almighty creator. And we can go through the theological and philosophical proofs to arrive at that. That's not what faith really is. Hebrews 1 tells us what faith is. It, it's, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That is, he's good to those who seek. God is benevolent and he wants to bless. And Joseph understood that. He understood it in prison. He understood it in slavery. He understood it when he stood right before King Pharaoh. And he was clinging to that faith. And turning others back to him. Okay, let's look at the end of the story then. We're done. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? See, Pharaoh's already seeing something special about this connection of Joseph and God. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And guess what? The dream didn't go anywhere. The brothers did not kill the dream. They thought they were killing the dream. They were just advancing it. Because God's plan cannot be overcome by human imaginations. The dream is alive and well with Joseph. And now it's starting to come to fruition. Joseph made a slave. Oh, no. And he could have been like this. Oh, no, God's forsaken me. And he probably was at times. But he came out of that with faith in God. Oh, man, I thought he was bringing me back out, but now I'm in prison. It's over. No, it's not. <laughs> Here we see the dream coming to fulfillment. God will keep his word. And here he sets Joseph. He makes him the prime minister of Egypt. He goes from being this Hebrew nomad to being the prime minister of Egypt, only Pharaoh above him. He is now the ruler that he had seen in his dreams. And then look at what he says when he... Uh, no, no, okay, I'm going to skip this. <laughs> look at what he says here. Okay, the end of chapter 41. He gets to where he's naming his kids. He's given, given wives by Pharaoh, and he names his kids. The firstborn is named Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Do you see Joseph's God-centered perspective? These are Hebrew names, by the way. Even after all that he had gone through, after all the opportunities he had had to abandon God, here he is staying with God. God has raised him up, and he doesn't say Pharaoh's done it. <clears throat> he doesn't name his child after Pharaoh, which might have been uh, ingratiating <laughs> to Pharaoh. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to give my kids names that reflect my faith in the one who is in charge of my life, regardless of my circumstances, God has made me fruitful. This is the Lord's doing. This is the fulfillment of it all. 
You know that God is the one who blesses. <coughs> Excuse me. God is the one who keeps his word. He blesses us in surprising ways. There was a guy I knew in uh, Louisiana. He passed away just, uh, I think, earlier this year. But he, he uh, ended up at my parents' church in Louisiana. And he had been a successful contractor, business guy, and had some kind of a, a stroke or something debilitated him. His wife left him. He ended up in the nursing home. Couldn't take care of himself well. And yet he would come to church, and that man would tell you when you talk to him, to him, this is the happiest I've ever been in my life. Lost his family, lost his job, lost his health, and yet he found God. And he found that God wanted to bless him. Even in circumstances that were difficult. This is the God that we serve, the God who intends to bless us. He doesn't make everything go like, our, like we want it to. It's not our plan, but he, he does intend to bless us. He is with us. And that's where our story comes about, around to this time of year, to Christmas, where we read the scripture, the, the statement that's given to us in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus, his name is Emmanuel. God is with us. That's the dream that was planted in our world through Jesus Christ. God with us now. God with us forever. Amen.